Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Thank you so much to Steadily Insurance for sponsoring this week's episode. There are a lot of things that keep us up at night as hosts. Those late night questions from your guests, scrolling Zillow for the next perfect investment, scouring Pinterest for design inspo. What shouldn't keep you up at night is worrying about what would happen to your hosting business if a fire, flood, or storm damaged your property, damages or theft occurred, or if a guest got injured and filed a lawsuit against you. That's where Steadily Insurance comes in. Steadily provides comprehensive landlord insurance to hosts doing short-term rental, mid-term, or even long-term rentals. So no matter how your business model might change, you are still covered. We all know that the coverage provided by the booking platforms we use isn't always the most reliable. So put your business in the hands of Steadily, who will have your back when you need it most. Click on the link in the show notes to request a free quote or head to hostwithnatalie.steadilypartner.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and I'm really excited to have Brenna Carls from The Mortgage Shop on today. You guys already know how big fans we are of Ryan Bakey. We've had him on the show twice, and he told me that I have to connect with her to talk all about lending and mortgages. And so she willingly came on, and she's going to debrief us on how we can get loans and get started in real estate. Full transparency, I did tell Brenna that this is the least prepared I've ever been for a podcast episode because I know so little about this that I couldn't even prepare an outline. So I'm going to be asking the most basic kindergarten level questions here. So she's going to break it down at a very, very beginner level for us. So thank you, Brenna, and welcome. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you fell into this line of work? And then we'll, we'll break it all down. Yeah, definitely. So, hey, guys, my name is Brenna. I'm the CEO and founder of The Mortgage Shop. So we opened The Mortgage Shop um, just to specifically specialize in short-term rentals and long-term rentals and vacation home loans because I was like, nobody out there is doing it. All these products suck. Basically, let me try to find a better way to do this and get good products to these clients and help build generational wealth. So before I um, did that, you know, I was a loan originator. I was a wealth management loan originator for a large bank uh, for about four years and then transferred and opened up my own company. But before that, <laughs> I used to be a uh, performer in the Smoky Mountains. So I was a lead singer in various shows around town, had writing deals in Nashville, things of that nature, um, was one of Dolly Parton's background singers when she was in town. And that sounds very interesting. I tell people I used to be cool um, <laughs> before getting into mortgage, but um yeah, I loved it. But, you know, I mean, I was working every single day, only had one day off. Um, contrary to popular belief, it does not pay that well. And then so I finally saved up enough money to build my first primary residence. And I nerded out with like all like the organization and stuff and what you needed to have. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to get into this. So in the mornings, I would intern at this um, older mortgage brokerage and then I would perform. And then I slowly just phased out of that and um then got the job as that, you know, loan originator, built it up to the wealth management and now owning the mortgage shop. So that's how I came to get in this business. That is the most random twist of events I've ever heard. But I am just curious, do you did your performing background help you in any way in this role? Or are they totally unrelated? Oh, Lord, yes. Because when I first started, I was like, there are so many things, you know, you need to learn. I knew short-term rentals, right? I've been raised here, like been around this area. My uh, original family was originally from here. And so I know rentals, right? And so I was like, I know that. I don't know all of these guidelines. So I'm going to fake it until I make it basically in these like presentations to realtors and stuff. And 
the thing with that is like, you just have to try your best. And that's what I did. And I hit the ground running and I basically didn't take no for an answer. And if I didn't know a question, you know, I was honest. I said, you know, I don't know, let me get back to you. And then when they asked me that question, it's something I didn't know. I would look up that question and know every single thing about that particular like subject. Um, and that's how I became to get good and start uh, developing that return business. And then my business expanded so much that I had to have like two assistants, a uh, loan originator under me. And I was, it, I was like, okay, there has to be a better way to get these clients better products and uh, close faster. So yeah, that's, that's that. Yeah. I guess that's the same. I mean, I'm not a performer, but I can imagine you get a song for the first time and you don't know it at all. And within a few weeks, you have to learn how to perform it on stage. And so you have to yeah, become and confident doing it. Yeah. 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 So I definitely see how that transfers. Um, you have to create a Dolly themed short term rental at some point. That would be the cutest thing ever. That is really like a really awesome idea. So listeners don't take that idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, no, she's awesome. So, I mean, if any, like there could be multiple Dolly uh, themed cabins and they would sell out because everybody loves Dolly around everybody here. Everybody so, loves Dolly. Um, that is an awesome idea though. All right. Let's now jump into all the nitty gritty. Um, I think it's funny how you started working a nine to five Dolly reference right there, right? He went from performing into the into the more traditional route and became a mortgage lender. So give us the basics. Like I said, I am so not knowledgeable. I hear these acronyms, DSCR, FHA, and I just, it's, it's so overwhelming. The one prop investment property we bought, our lender handheld us through that entire process. And when I look back, it's just a blur. Like I don't remember even what kind of loan we did. I think it was a second home, but I honestly don't remember. It was such a blur and so much paperwork when the notary came and there was literally a two inch fat stack of papers we had to sign and thumbprints. Like that's all I remember. And I blacked out. So give us like the whole rundown. Let's maybe we can go loan by loan or maybe in order yeah. of the process. Okay. Let's go loan by loan and, and explain what options are out there for people. So let's look at primary first, right? So I'm going towards the goal of helping you guys build generational wealth. So let's talk about that. How can you make money from your primary residence? So people that don't have enough money to put down maybe for a second home that we'll get into in a second or an investment property, and they do have a little bit of money or their family wants to gift them money, you can do a primary residence because you can get a 100% gift for that for your down payment and closing costs. A lot of people, what I say is a good idea is if you're just getting into this or let's say you're child is just getting into this and you want them to get landlord experience, you could always co-sign with them, get a duplex. They could rent out one unit. They're paying for their mortgage from the rent and learning how to be a landlord at the same time. Um, but for you purposely, you know, if it's a single family, you can put as little as 3% down, live in that property for a year, and then you can rent it out. So that's like a more long-term game, but it's still the game, right? So you can rent it out after living there for a year. And then you can get another primary residence. What a lot of people confuse FHA with, they're like, oh, it's a first-time home buyer's loan. Not really, um, even though people associate it with it. It's You can't have more than one FHA loan at a time. So you may already have a primary residence loan that's conventional, live there for a year, get out of that, rent it long-term or short-term if the zoning requirements allow for it. Um, and then you can get an FHA loan because you don't have another one. So there are different options. There's a conventional, which you can do three to three and a half percent down to five percent down. And then you've got the government loans like FHA. You can do three and a half percent down for that. So those are your two different options for that. Now, going down the loophole of if all of you, I'm assuming, will Google and you'll Google primary residences, then you'll Google FHA, then you'll see the word second home or vacation home. So let's go second home. Before um, we jump, home. before we Go jump ahead. into second home, I have one question on that. So you said yeah. that you have to live in it for a year. I know people who are currently renting their primary. They don't own any property. They're renting their primary, and they are debating between: should I buy my first property, live there, and then save up to do a short-term rental somewhere else, or should I keep renting where I live and buy a place and immediately turn that into a short-term rental? I get that question a lot that people are debating which is better, own own where they live or own an investment home and keep renting where they are. So 
in that case, if they decided to stay renting where they're currently at and live there and then buy something to immediately have as an STR, they would not be able to do this type of loan because they'd have to live there for a year. Am I correct in that? Yeah. So if they wanted a primary residence, they would either have to A, stay and rent where they're renting and then just get like a second home or an investment property loan. Okay. Um, because if you get a primary residence loan, you have to live there um, in and reside at that residence. So if I had to choose, you know, interest rates are higher right now. So you, I would tell them to look at their what they're paying in rent. If they can get a quote for what they would be paying for a mortgage for a primary residence, maybe look at that option uh, first if they don't have as much money to put down. Here's the thing, because um, you can, even though you can't like rent out your primary and not live there, you can have a roommate if you wanted to. You can charge them rent and you can build up money that way. So that's for the option for people that maybe don't have as much money that maybe would benefit from buying a property as opposed to paying astronomical rent. Now let's look at the other situation. If your rent's pretty good, maybe you got controlled rent, whatever it is, you've got money to put down for a second home loan or an investment property. Go ahead and do that because, you know, if your rent's fine, your, your rent's fine. You don't have to spend the time to up your life and move your stuff everywhere. Um, and then you can start cash flowing from that property, the investment property or what have you, um, immediately. Obviously, if this is your first time, I caution you to just throw caution to the wind because you want to run the numbers and make sure those numbers work. You know, you yourself, Natalie, cash flowing $1,000 a month might be great for you. But somebody else is like, no, I need to make have 3000 to make this work. And so, you know, with us, we we go over that situation with you. We, we look at it um, and say, okay, this is what it would be at the end of the month, probably uh, with taxes and insurance and your mortgage payment. And if you're self-managing renting, things of that nature. And that's how we go about it. So it's just, it's specific to the person. So it just, we look at the long-term goal and then what their current goal is now. And that's how we go about it. Okay. That one year that's required to live in a primary, a home purchase as a primary residence before you can rent it. Would it also count, let's say that the person bought like a major fixer upper. So for nine months, they're technically not living there, but they are fixing it up. It's not being rented. And then maybe for the last three months of the year, they just live there or don't list it or something, then are you able to officially start renting it out on the one year anniversary? Like what, what are these, what's the definition of this one year? If you are rehabbing, but you're not living there, then that's not your primary residence. Okay. You have to live there. If you live there while you're rehabbing it, yeah, definitely, you okay. know, rehab it, but it is one year. You need to live there one year, 12 months, and then you can rent it out. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. Let's move into the second home or vacation home loan. Yeah, so that's 10% down. So a second home loan is generally 10% down and up to that new 2023 conforming loan limit, which will be 726.2. We are now honoring it. Most lending companies are honoring that 726.2. Um, so you can do 10% down of that. Um, this vacation home loan, a lot of people are like, I'm just going to primarily, I'm going to just in like rent it out all the time. No, that's not what a vacation home loan is. Your primary intent has to be to rent it out. I mean, to vacation there. And then you can rent it out once you're not vacationing there. So the rule of thumb for a second home, you have to vacation there uh, 14 days out of the year, and then you can rent it out. So that's what a second home loan is. I recommend this guys, if you're getting into it for the first time, because you want to know the area that you have an Airbnb or Verbo property in because you want to be one of those super hosts. You want to be like, hey, here's the restaurants I like in this area. I definitely recommend you trying them out. Or, hey, you know, this attraction, Dollywood or what have you, is cool for the kids. If you have kids, I definitely recommend that while you're in town. It's more personalized and they feel like you actually care instead of like an automated response, right? Yeah. And plus, then you'll know the area and you can also vacation there. So I recommend that for anybody just starting out in this so you can get your feet wet and um, experience that. So let's say they purchase a second home and uh, like we just talked about, and now they have to do 14 days of vacation. It's per year, right? It's not just the first time they buy. So the first year they buy it, they go spend 14 days there 
And while they're vacationing, they're also setting it up and getting to know the area. Perfect. After that year after year, how, what is the, let's say that they got audited or something. What, how do you prove that you vacation there 14 days? What are they going to look for? Do you have to have like, I don't know, pictures so, I mean, in your photo really, roll that gonna, you were there or? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're going to get audited for, you know, prove that you were there 14 days. The IRS is totally different than mortgage companies, right? The IRS doesn't care what you do with that property. They care that you actually file that income so they can tax you. Okay. Um, so that's the difference. But if for some reason the mortgage company, let's say they're, I don't know, weird, <laughs> and they're like <laughs> driving by because there are there are local banks yeah. and stuff that will be like absolutely not you can't rent it out we're going to make sure that you're not renting it out which if they say that to you guys like do not that's a red flag don't go with them because they don't know what they're doing um, but they don't really but let's say your mortgage company was weird like that and you could be like here you go here's you know a picture or here's a you know here's when I spent gas or this at the gas station so it's like okay it would be really hard for the mortgage company to even like try to do anything to these people. I guess. But, so that's why I just say primary intent, you know? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm not totally not encouraging anyone to do anything illegal here, but my, I guess my question was just like, what counts as 14 days? Do you need to block off like 14 days in your Airbnb calendar or naturally you're not, most people do not book 365 nights of the year. So if you had some right. openings, could you just say, like, I went there for those three days? Uh, you know, like... Technically, no, you're not supposed to lie. Okay, okay, you're supposed okay. supposed to go there. You're supposed to go there. Okay, gotcha. So you want to vacation there. Uh, okay. Just, you know, the thing is, like, you're going to be there anyway. I would hope to, if you're doing a second home, to try right. to see the property right. and see what you need to do, see what kind of furniture you need to replace. Um, things so, of that nature. So you're going to be there. Right. Even even like trips to just like restock things or repair things, that can count towards this vacation time. You can be on vacation and also be tightening your dining room chairs while you're there at the same time. Okay. If you have a margarita while you're doing it. <laughs> That's the rule. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Yes. So that explains. So we've covered primary home residence, second home or vacation home residence. What is next? So next is 15% down investment only. So if like your primary intent is to invest and not really wanting to vacation there, I mean, you can because it's your property, but if it's just primarily made for investment, right? It's 15% down up to that 726.2 loan amount. And everybody's like, oh, it's a loan amount, guys. Remember that your purchase price will be higher. Um, so that's it. You can use proposed rental income if you need to, to offset your debt to income ratio. There's two different ways to do that. If you've never owned an investment property before, you can only offset the amount of what the mortgage payment will be. So let's say the rental income comes back and it's $5,000. This is your first time investing, but your mortgage payment is only 2000. You can only use that 2000 out of that 5,000 to offset that payment. Now let's say you already own a property, long-term or short-term, whatever it may be, or you have within the past three years. You can then use that full net rental income amount. So you can have, if it's $5,000, guess what? You're offsetting that mortgage payment plus adding an additional $3,000 uh, to your income for that deal alone. Um, so that's how an investment loan works. You don't necessarily have to use proposed rental income, but you can if your debt to income ratio is a little too high in the beginning. How do you calculate your debt to income ratio? Can we cover that? And yeah, what would so be considered your, high or low? Like what's a healthy range to be at for that? So your monthly, uh, it's your monthly debt divided by your monthly income. So if you think of the T and the DTI as like a slash, it's just debt divided by income. And so what counts towards your debt? Things like uh, credit cards, auto loans, student loans, mortgage payments, installments of any kind count towards your debt. Things like electric bills, cable, internet, the guy you pay to mow your grass doesn't count, you know? Okay. So, however, some of these properties have HOA fees, right? So if you have an HOA fee, sometimes it's convenient because it can cover all of that that I just said. Mm. However, once it's lumped into an HOA fee, it then counts against your debt to income ratio. 
So we always cushion our clients for that because we're investors ourselves and we know how that can go. So we always cushion just in case they do have an HOA fee come back on the accepted contract they get. Um, But that's basically it, what counts towards your um, monthly debt. So things like your, I don't know, dental bill that you got your teeth whitened or something, (laughs) that doesn't count. (laughs) Um, That doesn't count. It's just major that anything that reports on your credit report to those three bureaus. So debt is different Um, from expenses. These are two separate categories. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then what counts for And then your income, income yeah, <laughs> your income is, uh, if your W-2 is just your, you know, gross income that we can take, um, if you're salaried, then we just take that. If it's um, hourly, then we look at the average of the last two years and year to date and, and average that out. Um, if you are self-employed, what you think you uh, are making per year is not really what you're making if you're claiming stuff on your taxes. So we do a true income analysis on that. We get what your actual income is um, after the deduction. Some things we can add back into your income, things of that nature to get that bottom line of what we can use. Um, so that's for self-employment income. So those are the two different things. Okay. And then what, so someone listening right now decides to grab a piece of paper, scribble it out and do the ratio and they're calculating their DTI. What's a healthy range mm-hmm. to be at? So for jumbos, so jumbo loans is anything over that 726.2 loan amount. Most companies will say 43%, Okay, but uh, we can go up to 45% if needed. Um, so you, if you're over that 726.2 loan amount, you want to make sure you're kind of like not above that 45%. Keep in mind, guys, though, your proposed mortgage payment that you're purchasing goes into that monthly debt calculation. So you will add that proposed debt to your line item of debts if you're just trying to figure it out mm-hmm. roughly yourself. Or if you don't want to figure it out roughly yourself, just email you know a loan originator and be like, hey, here's my debts. Here's my income. Can you help me? Okay. Um, so- and, and then income, you know, if you're salaried, just put your salary down, divided by 12, that's your income. If you're hourly, you know, take your average of what probably you made last year and this year since we're at the two-year mark. Sure. Um, and divide that by 12. Okay. And that's what your income is. Self-employed, I wouldn't recommend trying to calculate what your, your net income is. I would just say send it to, you know, a loan originator so they can help you. Okay. So essentially, there's there's almost like, if I'm understanding correctly, there's really no point in calculating just your your current DTI for the current way you're living. The whole point is to factor in the potential mortgage you'd be getting and then see where you're at. Okay. Yep, and the potential um, income. So okay. you can also work with your loan originator to say, okay, this is the area I'm interested in. What do you think? If they're experienced in that area, you want to work with somebody that's experienced in the area. So basically we're experienced in all short-term rental areas from mid coast to east coast okay um and so we can tell you what that rental income is probably going to come back as is there a certain dti that mortgage mortgage companies just won't touch if you've got two hundred thousand dollars in student debt and your income is fifty thousand a year or something that's just like vastly out of proportion is it possible for people in that situation to invest in real estate so we can't go over 50% debt-to-income ratio. Okay. Um, and I'll segue into the loan that you can do if you're over that. Um, so you can't go over 50%. So we kind of do that math with you. Keep in mind, guys, it's not the balance of your debts that counts against your monthly debt. It's just your monthly payment. Okay. So if your balance of a student loan, for example, is 200000 but you pay, you know, 1% or whatever it is, you pay $200 a month, you take that $200 and that's what would be against your monthly debt. If let's say you, you know, go above that 726.2 loan amount and investment only, you then put 20% down for jumbo. Um, and that's how that works. But let's say your debt to income is capped, right? For the year until you file income or what have you on your tax return. You can do what's known as a DSCR loan, which is also an investment only loan, but it doesn't go off your personal income or personal debt. It stands for debt service coverage ratio. It goes off of the property you are purchasing's proposed monthly rental income and the proposed monthly mortgage payment. So I tried to say that a little bit slow because it can be confusing. 
But yeah. let's say, so this is how a DSCR loan works. Let's say your mortgage payment, your proposed mortgage payment is $3,000. We usually, uh, lending companies want a one-to-one ratio. So what that means is if your mortgage payment is $3,000, then that proposed monthly rental income needs to come back at at least $3,000 or higher. Okay. So basically what you're looking at at that loan is to make sure your credit is good, to make sure you have that 20% down plus closing costs. And reserves, usually you need about a six-month reserve for a DSCR loan, which means six months or six times whatever your monthly mortgage payment will be. Okay. And that's about it. Could we stay on this one for a little bit more? Because I keep seeing, it seems like DSCR loans are the trendy thing on TikTok and stuff. I keep seeing every, all the investors are talking about this type of loan. Why is this such a good option for people? Why is it, why has it become so attractive? So it's attractive if you've capped your debt. So with short-term rentals, let's say I told you you could use proposed rental income on the deal, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you did that deal last month. You were using the proposed rental income, but then you close the loan. Well, now you can't use that income until you file that tax return and file that income on Mm. your tax return. Okay. So let's say, well, I know I'm going to make income, but on paper right now, it looks like my debt to income ratio is capped. So let me do a DSCR loan if they want to expand their portfolio quicker. Um, If you do a long-term rental, it's not necessarily the case. You can use proposed rental income for a long-term rental. Once you close, if you get a lease agreement on it, you can use that income before you file your tax return. Okay. It's just short-term rentals that you cannot. So would you recommend, so is, Basically, if I'm understanding, a DSCR loan is really only needed if somebody's already kind of capped out like their primary home loan or they've done the second home. This is now kind of the next option. But would you start with this one or would you usually encourage people to do one of the first two we covered? I encourage the first two because conventional is always better terms. A lot of these DSCR loans will have uh, prepayment penalties. Ah, So they're known as what's known as it's a non-QM loan or a non-qualified mortgage. So they don't have to follow the government like guidelines, federal guidelines, um, anything like that. Okay. So they can have a prepayment penalty. Okay. Conventional loans does not have a prepayment penalty. It's a 30-year fixed amortized loan. If you refinance or sell, you don't have a prepayment penalty. Okay. So uh, what I see a lot of people are like, yeah, it might be the popular option. But it doesn't necessarily mean that option is the best one for you. So that's why I say work with somebody that knows what they're doing in this field to be like, this is the best deal for you. You know, if we want to expand your portfolio as quickly as possible, we'll look at the DSCR loan, maybe the third or fourth property down the road. Okay. And what was the down payment on a DSCR loan? 20%. 20. Okay. Um, are there any other loan options to cover any sort of like creative financing options and stuff? And I also want to talk to you about how, what's a good loan option if you are trying to work with a partner or an LLC? Yeah. So you can do, let's say you don't have enough money to put down. So for 10, for uh, the second home vacation, remember I told you guys primary residence, you can get a gift of 100% of the down payment plus closing costs for second home. You have to have 5% of your own funds go towards the the down payment. And then the remaining 5% plus closing costs can be gifted to you. Okay. Now, let's say you do 20% down on a second home. Then Fannie Mae throws the guideline out the window. They don't care where the money's come from. They just say 100% of it can be gifted to you at that point. So if you didn't have any funds and you needed to get some funds from your parents or family member or what have you, um, you can do that 20% down second home okay. because on investment properties, you are not allowed to get a gift for the down payment. Okay. Okay. That is fascinating. So back to kind of which option is better, the DSCR, even though it requires a higher down payment, they don't really care where the money's coming from. So if you could partner with some really great investors who trust you to put in the sweat equity and rehab it and manage it and they want to front the money, that's a good option in that case? Yes. However, I will say again, it will make or break you if you work with the wrong loan originator because we're going to sit down and say, what are your long-term goals? I have a partner. We want to expand our portfolio quickly. You know, I'm the asset. He's the manager, whatever it is. If you two are both on one same loan together and you go your separate ways and do it different, that mortgage payment will 100% count against each of you. Wow. Not 
half wow. each because let's say unfortunately your partner passes away. Well, guess who's paying that mortgage? You are. Yeah. So you don't want to cap yourself because Fannie and Freddie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allow you to have 10 max financed residential properties. So if you're wanting to expand your portfolio and you put each of you on the loan together, you're capping yourself at 10 when you could potentially have 20 if you get one loan and the next time your partner gets the other. Wow. Okay. Okay. And this then a DSCR so... loan also, you can close in an LLC and a DSCR loan. You cannot close in an LLC um, for conventional loans. This is so much info. So really like people have to go through a good originator to help them with all this. How do you keep track of all this? Um, what was I going to ask you? You got me thinking on another tangent. Oh, okay. I want to talk about, and I don't know if you would be the one to ask for this, but I'm thinking now if your goal is to own property, but you don't have money. And so you get this partner, right. And you're like, you put up a hundred percent of the cost, but I will rehab it. I will put my hands and my labor into it and manage it after who, how does it work with who gets on the title of the home? If you don't pay for any of it, are you still able to take like 50, 50 ownership in this? Or does it have to be who's putting up the money and you just come on as kind of a property manager? Um, how does like, ownership yeah, you can work? do, you can have anybody on title that you want. You can have your mom on title if you want. Um, and what I would recommend is like, no matter how good of friends you are, I would just come up with, you know, a partnership agreement, whether you come up with it and sign it or you get an attorney to sign it. But um, anybody can be on title. So you don't have to okay. be on the loan to be on title. Okay. I will say when you say somebody's fronting the money, guys, if you're doing an investment only loan or second home, a second home can only be gifted from a family member, spouse, or fiance. Can't be Bob across the street that you wave at when you're, he's mowing his grass. So um, family member, spouse, or fiance, if they see a large deposit in your account, they will ask what that is. And if it's money that you can't show is from a family member, they're not going to allow you to use those funds. So if you're using a partner and you're the one on the loan, you need to have, and you're not doing a DSCR loan, you're doing conventional. You need to have those funds seasoned in your account for at least two months. Okay. Because at that point, after two months, it wouldn't show as a large deposit in your account because any lender will only ask for a max of uh, two months bank statements. Okay. So if you need gifted money and it's outside of those three, family member, spouse, or fiance, they need to gift it to you at least 60 days ahead of time for it to not show up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I guess my next question is how, um, is there like a certain, okay, like CPAs, right? I will talk to my CPA and certain things he'll just be like, oh, you went to dinner this was a this was a business meal, right? And he won't even give me the chance to tell him that it wasn't. He like he wants to help mm -hmm. me out, and he's like, "Don't tell me, or I have to report it." How does it work with with loan originators? If if somebody were to tell you this was gifted more than two months ago from someone who wasn't a family member, are you like required to report anything, or that's it? You you only need At to that know point, this. Yeah, months. I mean, like, because I stay ethical. So if they're like, "It was gifted to me," you know, I'm like, "Can't really use those funds." Okay. So I just say, "Less is more." Okay. Give us what we ask for and nothing more. Okay, good to know. I don't want to hear about the fight you had with your spouse last night and that you may get a divorce. I don't want to know. I do not want to know. So all I want to know is for the items that I asked you for. Perfect. Okay, that's that's the takeaway here, guys. Only give them what your originator asks for. Don't offer up anything else. Um, Brenna, is there anything else? This was such a good deep dive. Oh, you know what? Actually, there is another thing I want to want to jump into you with. So I know everybody's talking about interest rates um, and they were 7%. It seems like lately they went down to 6.6 .6 if I'm reading things right. But then I hear that depending on the type of loan and how much down you put and your personal income situation, you can get a lower or higher interest rate. So how does how do interest rates play into the big scheme of what what the Fed is setting? Can you kind of debunk all of this? Yeah, so a lot of people think what the Fed does, it means that it's like, so this next meeting, I think they're going to raise it a little bit, maybe by a half a point. But that doesn't mean our interest rate is going to go up by a half a point. So we have to sell these loans off to the secondary market. Um, so when we do that, we kind of prep for these interest rates. So we will 
advise their clients like, hey, let's wait until the Fed comes out with their numbers. Because a lot of times when the Fed comes out with their numbers, our low, our rates actually lower a little bit uh-huh. because lenders will put their elevate their interest rates a little bit like the month before, just so they'll be, still be able to sell on the secondary market if interest rates did increase. Okay. So it does play a factor in the interest rates obviously increasing. Um, but it doesn't mean like I have to lock it in before this next rate increase. That's not necessarily the the thing. Um, interest rates have increased because we physically are not making as much paper money as we did. During COVID, interest rates plummeted. Everybody thought we were going to be in a Great Depression. We weren't. We could work from home. Everybody was thriving. And then everybody and their mom went out and bought things. So what happens when you spend all that money? There's not much money left to lend out, Right. So that's why the the Fed came in and said, we're going to curb inflation. We're going to start these rate increases to deter people from buying so much. Um, That's across the board. That's not just for mortgages. That's going and buying eyeshadow from Ulta or what have you. Okay. Um, That's that's everything. So um, what I say is, yes, the interest rates are higher. However, a lot of people get that in their mind. They're like, oh, that interest rate's high. I'm like, did you look at your mortgage payment? Did you look at the actual mortgage payment? Oh, no. Okay, here's your mortgage payment. Here's your net cash. You're going to, this is what you're probably about to average cash flow per month. Oh, I like that. I'm like, don't look at the interest rate. Work with your loan originator and realtor to make sure this is the bottom number that you're going to make. Some of my clients that are really experienced investors, they are just trying to break even because this is what's going to happen. The some of those same people that said they would offer like a hundred thousand over asking like seven months ago mm-hmm. are now complaining about the interest rate. I'm like, you were about to put a hundred thousand dollars so you could win that offer over sixty five other people. Yep. And now you're complaining about two hundred dollars extra per month or something yep. in your mortgage payment. Yes. <laughs> so the people that are educated, they are they are buying now because. I don't have any competition. I can put an offer right now and probably get the property if I wanted to because there's not as much competition. Your interest rate might be higher for a year, year and a half, but you have that real estate. So guess what? In another year, that interest rate is going to come back down. It's going to level out. Well, then everybody and their mom is going to start offering on properties and you are then going to compete as opposed to you already have your property. You just need to refinance your, your loan and you're done. Yep, 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 yeah. Thank you so much for touching on this. I've been feeling the same way. The fact that everyone is so scared right now, I'm like, isn't that a good thing? Haven't we been waiting for less people to be interested? I mean, it's a good thing for us investors because the ones that kind of know it are like, all right, well, y'all go ahead and sit there and we'll go buy the properties. (laughs) On on this topic, I want to ask you about the process of refinancing. Um, With the investment property we did, we did a cash out refi and I think at that time we did get a lower interest rate by one point or something like that. But I'm curious about if somebody bought back when interest rates were two and a half percent and they're ready to cat they want to try and do a cash out refi now, would they be adopting the seven percent interest rate? Or how do you get the money yeah. back from putting higher value and appreciation into the property without screwing over the really low interest rate you locked in a few months ago? So Obviously, I would want the person's business to refinance, right? But that's not why I opened this company. I opened it to make it make sense for the borrower. So I would say, do not touch that loan. Let it stay there. Mm. Don't cash out refinance. Keep that low interest rate. Do a HELOC. A HELOC or home equity line of credit, it's like a credit card. It's revolving. So let's say you have 50000 that you needed and you can get a line of credit for that. You can pay that off and then you can continue to borrow from that HELOC. The cash out refinance is one and done and you are stuck with that interest rate. So I say don't touch that low interest rate mortgage. Just get a HELOC if you can, if you have equity in your property to pull out. Okay. Is there a reason that I know the Burr method, the buy, rehab, rent, refi, repeat, if I got it right. Um, so there's that that refi part, the refinance step. So is there a reason that most people would prefer to do the Burr method over a HELOC? What are the pros and cons to each of them? They would have to do a Burr if they could not find a HELOC. So a lot of people won't do a HELOC on an investment property. Okay. And a lot of people have rules of how long you have to have that seasoned repairs to get a cash out refinance. So 
they'd have to hold it for at least, I think it's six months from the time they do repairs. Some people require 12 months um, to do a cash out. There are, we offer HELOCs and there are lenders that offer HELOCs on investment properties. So I'd say instead of doing a cash out because your interest rate is probably going to be higher, I'd try to get that HELOC first on that burr. And because you're still holding that property um, and you're not refinancing the whole lien so you can add a lien to it and not have to worry about, you know, that seasoning requirement, hopefully. So I would say call it burr-her because burn her. <laughs> All right. That's the, new maybe that's the new, that's the new one that's kind of going to come out. Burr her. Okay. So, so in your opinion, basically the, the biggest difference between the, the biggest pros and cons of the refi versus the HELOC is like the timing right now, since interest rates seem to be higher, it would be a bad time to refi in your opinion, but in a year, if they drop back down, would you revisit that yeah. and, and put the HELOC on the back burner at that time? Yeah. Okay. That point. Yeah, because HELOCs are traditionally higher than refinances. But if okay. your lien, your first lien, like your regular loan, is a four, three, three to four percent, like keep that. Don't mess with it. Because again, guess what? Refinance is one and done. Mm. Versus if you're keeping that property um, and you're, you know, renting it out to long term rentals, but you're still owning it or you're doing a short term rental, you can pull again from that HELOC as opposed to that refinance. Once you use those funds, it's done. You can't reuse it. Okay. What are the risks with a HELOC? If you are immediately taking that money out and putting it into a new property, and then if this first one just doesn't start performing, isn't performing as well as you thought, and you still have to make the payments on it, um, what, I guess, what would you advise here? I know investors are constantly talking about growing, but is there a point where you would caution that they just stick with where you're at? So on DSCRs or anything really i say if you did not rent out this property for a month three months whatever it is are you okay with making that payment you have to be okay with it making that payment okay investing in real estate is a risk it's a lower risk than stocks and stuff like that but it's still going to be a little bit of a risk so you have to be a smart investor you can't just be like okay i'm going to do it and not ask questions you want to make sure you want to look at that payment be honest with yourself and say can i make that payment if i don't receive any rental income Okay. Um, I'm going to give, you know, Yellowstone as an example. So in the beginning of this year, yeah, it was the beginning of this year or the middle of this year, it had flooding up there and the bridges collapsed. So some people were stuck in Yellowstone and they couldn't get back to their Airbnbs or they couldn't rent out their Airbnbs at that point because nobody could get to them. So, so they were vacant. Yeah. So like if something happened like that, you need to be comfortable with making those payments Okay. Um, in an instance like that. Okay. I think the very last question I want to ask you is, is there a difference when you're applying for a loan? Is there a difference between if your investment strategy is to do a short-term rental, mid-term, or long-term? Does the loan originator care at all what, which option you're choosing? Or as long as you're able to make the mortgage payment, do they not care? Would this factor into that calculating that DTI that we talked about, that you could report a higher potential profitability or you know, most of my listeners are short-term rental investors and like they're trying to niche mm-hmm. an STR, but I always like to tell people that you can leave the option open that if STR isn't working for you or you don't like it or you feel burnt out, you can always transition to midterm or long-term. So are there mm-hmm. any specifics there that would have to be accounted for at the time of applying for the loan? Only for DSCR. So DSCR is timber rental because it does go, you can either go off a long-term rental or short-term rental. Okay. So we need to know where the area you're purchasing at. Is it going to be a short-term rental or long-term rental? So we know what numbers to use because there is a difference. Okay. Like here in the Smoky Mountains, a long-term rental might be, you know, three bed, three bath might be 3000 a month versus you get, you get, you know, 15000 20000 you know, in one of these nice cabins with a view. So it is a difference. However, on the conventional loans, it really doesn't matter because it's like a one size fits all. Basically, there's like a median, there's like a low to high. If you hit the low, like it doesn't matter. Um, But DSCR, you do want to let us know which one you're planning on doing because that determines on what income we will be looking at to make sure you hit that ratio. Okay. Wonderful. Um, I am anticipating we will have to do a part two because this was just such a good like breakdown of all the different loans. But I would love to do another episode of actually like 
bouncing around strategy ideas for you. And maybe we can have people submit like questions and sort of getting your advice. So, um, will, I think people will love this. This was really, I've been like looking for a good breakdown like this because everyone's talking about the trendy little acronyms on TikTok and stuff and trying to sound all smart, but I feel like we needed to like know what these actually are and what the terms are. So thank you so much. And, um, I'd love to have you back if you're open to it. Um, Brenna, how can people connect with you? And if they want to use you and your services to get their mortgage going, how can they reach out to you? Yeah. So first I want to say guys, like there was a lot of information in this episode, right? So you're going to feel overwhelmed if you're listening to it because you're like, what did she say about just, you're going to have access to this episode. So just yeah. pause it, rewind on the part you want to listen to. I tell you guys to write your questions down because you will forget it. If you don't write your questions down, they're going to be mad at yourself that you forgot the questions. Yeah. So write those questions down and then you can get in touch with me, uh, Brenna at mortgage shop, S H O P, uh, .co, not .com, but just .co like company. And then our website is just www.mortgage.shop. Um, pretty simple. There's different avenues. I do mortgage prep Zoom calls um, every Wednesday. You can get on those. They're free. I just go over any questions y'all have. Like it, it's pretty cool to learn and grow, you know, because as an experienced investor, you have to just be successful in this business. You have to know what you're doing. Um, so don't get overwhelmed. That's how you can reach out to me. Um you know, I'm on Facebook as well, where our mortgage shop is on Facebook. So just Google or not Google Facebook, the mortgage shop. And you can ask questions on there. I'm on there all the time. Um, But that's it. I will link all of that below. And I will also be joining your Wednesday, uh, your Wednesday Zoom calls. That sounds like a really, really great resource. So thank you so much, Brenna. And um, hopefully we get you back for part two soon. All right. Thanks. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, this one was shocking, and I've never seen anything like this. Uh, if if this host didn't have the screenshots to prove it, I would think that they were exaggerating or making this up. But essentially, a host in a Facebook group posted, and this part kills me too, they posted, this is the third time this has happened on Airbnb with my properties from a newly registered guest with no previous history or reviews. When I read these to you, you guys are going to be shocked. And this guy says that this is the third time this has happened to him. I've been hosting for five years and I've never had this happen once, but let's continue. He says, they usually start out asking several questions like, is it a safe area? Do they need a car? Or if we have the proper cooking utensils? They're working for a well-known company coming in for a big project. The booking has always been for at least two to four months. The request is for one or two nights, then wanting to extend monthly and book outside the platform. They also want to communicate through WhatsApp. The conversation starts off politely and then takes a nasty turn after I decline the booking. Warning, very strong language in these screenshots. I reported him to Airbnb three days ago, but so far no action has been taken against this guest. His profile is still active on the platform. Be careful if you receive these types of booking requests. And here are the screenshots. I have to censor a lot of this. This is wild and you guys, I've never, I've had some asshole guests before. I have never seen this level of, all right, here we go. So the guest says, thanks. Can you add one of your contact details? Your house is in a great location. The design is great. I really like it. I plan to book from January 2nd to the 5th. I will arrive at the property on January 5th. I will pay for one month on Airbnb before I leave and pay the rest in one lump sum after I see the house. Is this acceptable? I work for Goldman Sachs. The purpose of this trip is to check out the local situation. My department is planning to invest in a logistics company to set up a logistics transit warehouse here next year. I will be here for at least three months with the possibility of an extension. I intend to be at your house on January 5th. We have a travel fund, so the company is offering it to us, but it will take some time to reach my bank account. I expect my funds to arrive between the 2nd and the 5th. So you know why I am looking for your contact information, so that we can stay in touch through daily communication also. The host replied and just said, scammer, and declined the inquiry, which I love. You guys know my stance on this. I you have no need to explain yourself when you decline a reservation in a case like this where it's so clearly this sketchy you do not need to start apologizing and over explaining yourself this is perfect decline and then just say scammer so that you don't get dinged for not being responsive perfect the scammer then writes 
What have you lost, useless guy? Son of a bitch. Fuck you doing. Damn you to hell. (laughs) I can't, you guys, it gets so racist here, I can't even read it. It literally gets full on racist. I'm uncomfortable reading this. Okay, racist slur. I'm not even going to say it. It literally makes me uncomfortable to read it. I'd slap you, but I don't want to make your face look any better. Oh, yeah? Better fuck off, you racist. I, I can't even. He calls him a racist, blank, effing, see you next Tuesday. Oh, my God, you guys, I can't even read this one. It makes me so uncomfortable. Why are you so proud of yourself? My people do math and your people do meth. Your mom was probably on drugs all the time when she was pregnant. Okay, love that. Love that spelling. Pregnant. So they have given you this brain, you brainless twat. Go home and somk. I think that's supposed to say smoke. Go home and smoke another joint because that is the only thing your tiny useless brain good at. Get f***ed, you f***ing white. See you next Tuesday. Go back to your country. You should off to England and give the land back to the aboriginals, you racist piece of shit. Here, here is my question for you guys. Do we think that this quote-unquote guest works for Goldman Sachs? In what world, in what world would this person be able to hold down a job at Goldman Sachs? I'm sorry. I know not all of us have the best opinion of Goldman Sachs. Maybe some of you are sitting there thinking that he'd be a perfect candidate for them. But come on, this guy cannot make it in corporate America. One bad encounter with with a coworker, an employee, a boss. And can you imagine the emails that he's sending within the company? There is no way that this guy works for any company at all. He's probably a drug dealer or a scam artist. There is literally no way that this guy is holding down a successful job. I am shocked that Airbnb has not removed this account. Um when when this was posted, this host said that it's been three days since the host reported this account and nothing. Even without the language and the vulgarity and the profanity, it's still, he's blatantly violating Airbnb policy. He asked to take communication to WhatsApp and to start paying off of Airbnb. So even if somebody were to not view that language as offensive, which obviously you would, but just even if you wouldn't... This person is blatantly violating Airbnb policy. I have no idea how this account is still up. I hope it's been removed since. It's been a week since I saw this Facebook post. So hopefully they've taken it down. But lesson learned, you guys. Uh, I'm still so happy with that host just sending the message of scammer and declining it. Could you imagine if he went into this whole explanation of why he was uncomfortable with the reservation and all sorts of stuff? Don't even waste your energy on guests like this. Don't even waste your energy like this. You see something like that, you decline it, and you just say the word scammer so that you can protect your response rate. Host, 10 out of 10. Love how they handled it. I would have done the same thing. Guest uh, ended up not being a guest, thank God. Obviously, the asshole here. And Airbnb, if you guys do not remove this account, you are the Airbnb holes as well. Clean this up. You got to remove, you got to remove bad profiles like this. This is so inappropriate. It's good that this host had a good enough attitude about it to take the screenshots, post it online, and just laugh it off. But this is really, really disgusting what this person said and honestly made me uncomfortable to read it. Um, You guys, do we think he works for Goldman Sachs? Pregnant. He literally spelled it pregnant. Okay. <sighs> this guy does not work for Goldman Sachs. That's that's the moral of the story. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.